Well, this evening, I'm turning back to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 27, and I'd like to uh, direct your attention to verse 42, and particularly just the opening uh, sentence there, Matthew chapter 27 and verse 42, where we read, He saved others, himself he cannot save. And my title for this evening is The Only Man Christ Couldn't Save. The Only Man Christ Couldn't Save. And the whole of Matthew's Gospel has been building up to this momentous and very solemn chapter. His great focus throughout this Gospel has been on the kingship and the power and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew continually points to Jesus and his underlying thread through this gospel, this underlying thread that runs through this book here is that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And as you go through the gospel, he's continually trying to emphasize the kingship of Christ. He's king over creation. He's king over Satan and his devils. He's king over sickness and disease. He's king over death himself. Matthew says all the way through, here is the king. But then you come to chapters 26 and 27 and the mood darkens. It seems that the king lacks power. It seems that the king is going to be defeated. We see Jesus Christ betrayed. We see him arrested. We see the Lord of all the earth is bound. We see him accused and found guilty of death. We see him condemned. We see him stripped and humiliated. We see Christ held in contempt and he's mocked. We read that they spat upon him and they smote him. And then they led the king of glory away to be crucified. And we read, didn't we, in this passage how he was nailed to a cross. And as Jesus was hanging there, some we read... Uh, There, in verse 36, sitting down, they watched him there. This dying king was their entertainment for the day. You know, it was as if they were saying, you know, bring a rug and sit down and watch this king die in agony and in shame. Others, in verse 39, as they passed by, reviled him. They laughed at this king and they wagged their heads and they threw accusations at Jesus And they mocked him and they said, if thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. If you claim to be who you are, if you really are the king of kings, then come down. You can hear the ridicule, can't you, and the scorn in their voice. You know, he thought he was the son of God. He thought he was the king of the Jews. Go on then, come down. Show us who you really are. We read too in verse 44 that the thieves that were crucified with him, one on either side, they also joined in with all this derision. It's interesting, isn't it, as you read this account, you never read of anyone mocking them. You never read of any of the passers-by reviling the two thieves. No, it seems that all the vitriol and all the hatred that day was concentrated on Jesus. And in this crowd of scorning onlookers, we see another group of people mentioned in verse 41. These were the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. 
Here amongst the common people of the day were the religious elites. They've come to join in with those who are passing by. They too had come out of the city to witness this spectacle, to see Jesus die. They too had come to watch the king die in agony and in shame. And forgetting themselves and forgetting their station and position in society, they join in with the baying crowds. They add their own insults to the others that have already been hurled at Christ and they snipe at the Saviour too. And in verse 42 they say, He saved others. Himself, he cannot save. They doubt this king's power and majesty, and so they mock. And what they said here was a a sardonic statement. It was laced with sarcasm. But what the chief priests and the scribes and and the elders failed to realise as they made this very sarcastic statement was that it was also a self-condemning statement. And this evening I want us to look at this statement, and I want to think about this subject of the only man that Christ couldn't save. And I want to look at this statement under two headings with you this evening. If you notice, the statement that they make here naturally divides into into two parts. And the first part here, he saved others. This first point this evening, we see an amazing affirmation. An amazing affirmation. They say here, as Jesus is hanging upon the cross, he saved others. It's interesting to notice, actually, before we look at this statement, that everyone else threw their accusations at Christ, but the chief priests and the scribes, they don't even direct him personally. They talk amongst themselves. It's as if they couldn't even bring themselves to actually hurl this at the Saviour. But they said here, he saved others. Here was a, a confession, an affirmation, that the Lord Jesus Christ, during his ministry, had saved other people. And the gospel writers record, don't they, for us, miracle after miracle, sign after sign, where Christ had saved other people. You take, for example, the woman who approached Jesus in in Matthew chapter 9. You go back a few chapters into Matthew chapter 9 and verse uh, 20. The Lord Jesus Christ was on the way to Jairus' house, and this woman who was diseased with an issue of blood in Matthew chapter 9 came behind him. She'd been plagued with this infirmity for 12 years. And in verse 21, she said within herself, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. She said, if I might but just touch him, I'm going to be healed. And you know that word there at the end of the sentence, I shall be whole. It's exactly the same word that's translated as saved in our text this evening. She says, if I can touch him, I will be saved. And it says there that she touched him. And Jesus turned about, didn't he? And he says to her daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made whole. The woman was saved from that hour. Christ had saved her. We read in Mark's gospel something very similar in Mark chapter 6 and verse 56, we read how he entered into villages and cities and the country and they laid the sick in the streets before him. And as he passed by, it said that they besought him that they might touch, if it were, but the border of his garments. And as many as touched him were made whole. They were saved. And we could list miracle after miracle where Christ saved people. He saved the sick 
from disease. He saved his disciples in a storm. He saved 5,000 people from hunger. He saved Peter from drowning. He saved Jairus' daughter from the grip of death itself. He saved Legion, didn't he, from the power of Satan. And we could go on and on and on, listing miracle after miracle, which proves that Jesus saves. And of course, this is the very reason why Christ came into the world, wasn't it? It was to save his people. That's why he was given the name Jesus at his birth. Because we're told that he shall save his people from their sins. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 56, Christ expressly states that the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. In John 12, 47, he says, I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. And again, we could turn to scripture after scripture that confirms that Jesus came into this world to save, and he does save. When the Philippian jailer, you remember in the book of Acts, cried out, what must I do to be saved? Paul turned to him and said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And here while Christ was hanging on the cross, his enemies make this amazing affirmation, he saved others. And he did. But as they make this sublime statement, it's not only confirming Christ's glorious character, but it was also revealing the pride that was deeply rooted within their own hearts. It was revealing their spiritual blindness as as well as their their utter ingratitude to the Saviour. They knew that he could save. They had been eyewitnesses of this wonderful truth. They, they, They now proclaim it as he's dying upon the cross. He saved others. And yet despite knowing all of this, Never, not once, did they ever come to the Saviour themselves. Not once did they ever come to Christ for salvation. But friends, this evening, what about you? Do you know this amazing affirmation that is still true today? Christ had saved sinners in the past, yes. But the most wonderful thing thing tonight, friends, is this, that Christ still saves sinners today. He's still in the, in the business of delivering sinners out of their sin and out of their guilt. He's still lifting them out of the, the horrible pit and out of the miry clay. And perhaps, friends, some of you here tonight, you know that. You know Christ saves. Perhaps you've seen others who have been saved. You've seen them saved from their sin. You've seen the change in their lives. Just like blind Bartimaeus was made to see, or a dead Lazarus was was made alive again, or a a money-grabbing Zacchaeus was now giving to the poor. You've seen the change in a believer's life. You've seen the old become new. You've seen the joy that it brings to a believer's life. And yet, despite knowing that Christ saves, you've never come to Christ yourself. You've seen him save others, but he hasn't saved you because you've never come. Perhaps like the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, instead of coming, you prefer to snipe at Christ from the sidelines. You throw a bit of your own scorn into the mix. You join in with this world laughing at the things of God, and yet you know Christ saves. Friends, if if that's you tonight, let me remind you what it says in Hebrews 7. In verse 25, it says that he is able to save them to the uttermost. They come unto God by him. Sinner, he can save even you tonight. 
If only you would come and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see here in the first place this amazing affirmation. But notice, secondly, this evening we see a a paradoxical proclamation. These chief priests and these scribes and these elders had, had just said that Jesus could save. And so what they say next, it seems on the surface to be a bit of a paradox. It seems to, be, seems to contradict what they've already been saying because they then say himself he could not save. In their ridicule of the Saviour, they make this observation that Christ, having helped so many, now hangs helpless. And having saved so many, he now can't save himself. And so they laugh at him and they, they add insult to, to injury. But you see, what they say on the one hand was false. The one that they were mocking was the almighty, the eternal, the glorious son of God. Hanging there on that, on that Roman gibbet was the second person of the Trinity. Just a few hours before this moment, you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the, when the soldiers had come to arrest him, Jesus said to those who were coming to arrest him, he said, Whom seek ye? And the band of men and, and officers replied to, to Jesus and they said, you know, we've come to, to seek you. It's you that we want, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus responded, you remember, and he said, I am he. And at that precise moment as he uttered those words, John tells us that they went backward and fell to the ground. Just a few words, but what power. The mob came to arrest what they thought was a mere man, but found they were in the presence of almighty God's. While they were in the garden, you remember how Peter took out his sword and he cut off the the ear of the servant of the high priest. But Jesus, you remember, tells him to put the sword away. And he says to him, you know, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father? And he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. Jesus says, look, I could have called legion after legion after legion of angels to help me and deliver me. And the same was true while Christ was hanging upon that cross. If he had desired it, if it had been the very will of God, Christ could have pulled out those nails from his hands and from his feet. He could have taken the crown of thorns off his head and replaced it with a crown of glory and he could have come down in majesty and power from that cross. He could have descended, couldn't he, and done so in such power and such wonder that everyone would have had to fall before him and confess, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ had the power to do it. But while the chief priests and the scribes and the elders were wrong in one sense, yes, they were wrong because he was the eternal son of God. In another sense, they were right. Perhaps it would have been better to say that they were half right. It was not that Christ could not save himself, but rather Christ would not save himself. Christ was unwilling to come down. And he was resolved to stay upon that cross. And we might note that this is for for a number of reasons. And we could say firstly that Christ could not come down from the cross or he would not come down from the cross because to do so would have been to disobey his father. His father, you remember, had sent his son into the world to be the saviour of the world. And the will of God was that Jesus should go all the way to Calvary and he should die on that tree as a curse for his people. And if Christ had come down at that hour from the cross, he would have disobeyed his own father. The father that he loved and had loved from eternity past. 
If he had come down, he would have disobeyed him and gone back on his words. But do you remember what Christ had already said in Gethsemane? Not my will, but thine be done. And the will of the Father was that Christ should go to Calvary. And the will of the Father was that Jesus should die. And not only, you see, would it mean disobeying his Father, but it also meant violating the covenants. Remember how Christ, even before he was sent into the world, he agreed with his father in eternity past that between them they would come and they would save a people from their sins. The father promised to send his son and to give him the grace that was sufficient and needed. And Christ promised to come into this world. He promised to come as a man, as a, as a servant. He promised that he would live a perfect life of obedience that he would also then go and pay the penalty for sin. And of course, the penalty for sin was death. It was a promise that would mean that he would have to die a substitutionary death, that he would have to be a sufficient sacrifice to please his father, that Christ would have to shed his blood for the remission of sins. But you see, as these chief priests and these scribes and these elders hurl this accusation as they make this statement towards him, if Christ had come down from that cross at that moment, the covenant of redemption would have been violated. He would have breached its terms. He would have breached its conditions. And this means too, doesn't it, that if he had come down from the cross, he would have broken the scriptures. The whole of the Old Testament had been leading up to this moment, leading up to this, this point when Christ would die on Calvary. There was prophecy after prophecy that Christ would suffer and that he would give his life as a ransom for many. We read Psalm 22 earlier. We read there how they would laugh at Christ and they would pour their scorn upon him, how they would mock him. And it tells us in that psalm that he would be brought into the dust of death. Isaiah 53, likewise, another passage that so clearly speaks, doesn't it, how Christ would pour out his soul unto death, that he would be cut off out of the land of the living, that he would make his grave of the wicked and with the rich in his death. You think of Daniel 2, Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26, it tells us the Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. And if Christ had come down, he would have broken the scriptures, but we're told the scripture cannot be broken. And so Christ couldn't come down. But we could also say, couldn't we, not only... Would Christ have disobeyed his father? Not only would he have violated the covenant, not only would he have broken the scriptures, but if Christ had saved himself, then his people would be eternally lost. You know, friends, tonight, if Christ had come down from the cross, there'd be no hope for sinners like you and me. Without the shedding of blood, we're told there is no remission of sins. If Christ had not died, then my sin and your sin still needs dealing with. The debt hasn't been paid. The stain has not been washed away. If Christ had come down, then both you and me tonight are still guilty sinners. But friends, the wonderful truth is that Christ did not save himself because he was saving his people. He was resolved to, to lay down his life for his sheep. You know, it reminds me of that moment in the life of Nehemiah. You remember Nehemiah when he was working on the walls of Jerusalem and there was those men who came and they asked him, you know, Nehemiah, will you, will you come down from the work that you're doing? And Nehemiah 
tells them that he can't do it. Do you remember the words that he uses there? They wanted him to stop, but he responds to his enemies and he says, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Nehemiah refused to leave the work that the Lord had given him to do. And likewise, Christ there upon the cross, he refused to come down. He was engaged in a great work, the greatest of works. He was building the walls of salvation for his people. Jesus refused to save himself in order that he might save sinners like you and me tonight. He refused to save himself in order that he might be a willing sacrifice that was acceptable to his heavenly father. Friends, tonight let me say to you, here is our only hope of salvation. It rests only in a crucified Christ. Let me ask you tonight, are you one of those saved by Christ? Paul wrote, didn't he, Christ died for our sins. Can you say that? Can you say Christ died for my sins? Friends, here is the solution to your greatest need. It's the cross. It's the cross with a dying saviour. It's not an empty cross, but it's a cross with a dying saviour. He saved others, and yet he refused to save himself. But is he your saviour tonight? Are you trusting in this one who refused to come down? We've just said that if Christ had saved himself, he would have disobeyed his father. We've said that it would have violated the covenant. We've said it would have broken the scriptures. We've said that if we, we would be eternally lost if Christ had come down. But I think we can add one final point this evening. And that's to say that if Christ had saved himself, he would have been untrue to himself. Remember what he says to his disciples in John chapter 15. There's wonderful words as he speaks to them there in John Chapter 15 and verse 12, he says to them there, I have loved you. I've loved you. But if he had saved himself at the cross, it would have been out of love for himself and not out of love for his people. No, Christ stayed upon that cross because having loved his own, he loved them to the ends. If he had come down from the cross, he'd have been untrue to himself that he is our loving saviour. And we sometimes sing those words, don't we? Was it the nails, O Saviour, that bound thee to the tree? And we say, nay, t'was thine everlasting love, thy love for me, for me. And then we have the wonderful chorus, O make me understand it, help me to take it in, what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. And friends, do you see tonight, your only hope is in Christ, the one who loved sinners, and refused to come down because it would have been untrue to himself. He came to save a sinner like you. And it's because he loved his people. Let me ask you tonight, Silla, will you not come and trust in a loving saviour? He saved others, they said. Wonderfully true. Himself he cannot save. Well, he could have done friends, but he didn't. He refused to. Praise God that the Lord Jesus Christ refused to save himself. Praise God tonight, Christ still saves sinners.